0: Hello everyone, I'm Beck, and um, I'll be reading the Bible passage for tonight before Sam brings us the sermon for this evening. Uh, Our Bible passage is from Romans chapter 11, verses 11 to 24. I love hearing the rustling of the Bible pages. People have been bringing their Bibles. It's great. Romans chapter 11, verses 11 to 24. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I'm talking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope. That I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of their unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant but tremble For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And if they did not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted in their own olive tree?
1: Thanks for reading, Beck. G'day everyone, it's great to be with you. My name's Sam. Uh, It's a joy to explore this part of the Bible with you tonight. So there's an increasingly popular service that you can access where you send in a sample of your DNA and you return you get returned back to you a report that gives you a, a kind of a history of your ethnic identity the different ethnicities that make up who you are and the science behind these tests seems to be maybe a bit sketchy but nonetheless many people are doing these tests and there are lovely stories you can see them on youtube of people with previously negative perceptions of other cultures being confronted and challenged and changed by realising that they themselves share that heritage. A sense of of superiority or disdain towards another culture, racism, is undone as people realise that instead of seeing that culture as, as other, it's part of who they are. And that's kind of the work that Paul is doing for the Roman church and that God is doing for us here in Romans chapter 11 tonight if you've been with us over the last couple of months as we've worked through Romans then the kind of opening to this passage is becoming very familiar isn't it Paul asks a rhetorical question uh, in response to what he previously said and then he replies not at all no way definitely not And so this is his 10th and his final emphatic negative, the 10th and final time that he uses this rhetorical device. 10 questions all answered, no way. Paul's strategy is kind of like like bumper bars in 10-pin bowling. He's saying, nope, not past there, nope, not past there, not past there, getting us where we need to go. And last week we saw that the break in Israel's relationship with God is not total. It's not utterly broken. And now we see that the break in Israel's relationship with God is not final. It's not forever. God has an ongoing concern for the people of Israel. He has plans for them. And so tonight we're going to be considering the ongoing place of the ethno-religious people group of Israel in God's salvation plan and what the implications of that are then for us maybe it's something that you've thought about a bit the ongoing role of the Jewish people in God's plan I suspect for a lot of us it's something that we haven't thought about very much at all what's the place of Israel now how does God relate to Jews now? Does he relate to them any differently to how he relates to Buddhists or, or Muslims or atheists? Well, We're going to work on an answer to those questions together uh, in this text. And so Paul starts through this, this familiar rhetorical device with his kind of launching point. Israel's failure to receive the gospel does not put them beyond redemption. You can see in verse 11 there, he starts, did they stumble as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all, no way. And then look from the second half there of verse 11, he says, rather, because of their transgression, that's their failure to receive Christ the Messiah, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. So because Israel rejected the Messiah, the gospel went global. That's, that's the, the, the story of Pentecost. Today's Pentecost Sunday in the church calendar, and that's what we remember, this gospel going to the nations, going global. And then we see at the end of verse 11, this happened to make Israel envious. That's strange, right? So... so In God's salvation plan, when the Jews see the Gentiles enjoying their covenant blessings, when they see God's law written on our hearts, when they see the goodness of life in the kingdom of Jesus, the Messiah, they become desirous of that. They want it for themselves, right? And so then they come into God's new multi-ethnic family. That's God's plan. That's what Paul wants to see. So, when we see Paul's heart broken for the people of Israel at the start of chapter 9, at the start of chapter 10, at the start of chapter 11, it's not a heart that's broken in despair. He longs for them to know the gospel, and he believes that they can. They're not a lost cause. He describes what's like a a chain of blessing between Israel and the Gentiles. It's important to grasp this because it kind of controls our passage and next week's as well. First, in this chain of blessing, already through Israel's failure, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And then secondly, this Gentile salvation will make Israel envious and so lead to her inclusion into the people of God. And then third, Israel's inclusion will bring even greater riches to the rest of God's people. It's like a a relationship, right? Like a a friendship or a marriage or any kind of relationship. When one party treats the other with, with kindness or with generosity, the recipient is motivated to return that same kindness or generosity. And so kind of builds the health of that relationship. It's like a positive feedback loop of blessing. One commentator wrote, the no of the Jews to the message of the gospel will lead to the yes of the Gentiles. And this in turn will lead to the ultimate yes of the Jews. So Paul's picturing blessing flowing back and forth between the Jews and the Gentiles in God's salvation plan. Any suggestion that Israel and the Gentiles are in opposition, that they're enemies, that they're competitors for God's love, is badly mistaken. And this isn't just an intellectual curiosity for us, right? No, this knowledge that God desires and plans Israel's salvation should do something in our hearts. And we can see further down through the passage what it is that God wants us to do in the hearts of Gentiles. Have a look in verse 18. It says, do not consider yourself to be superior. And then look at the end of verse 20. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. Those are the two imperatives, the two commands of this passage Don't consider yourself to be superior. Don't be arrogant, but tremble. So he's calling out any sense of Gentile superiority. Basically a kind of a theological anti-Semitism. Paul has earlier in Romans called out any sense of Jewish superiority, any Jewish boasting. And now he calls out Gentile boasting, Gentile superiority. The city of Rome, where these people lived and worshipped, was an increasingly hostile place to be Jewish. And no doubt the fledgling church community was affected by these cultural tensions around them. One scholar wrote this at the time of the Jews in Rome. Their exclusiveness bred the unpopularity out of which anti-Semitism was born. The Jew was a figure of amusement contempt or hatred to the gentiles among whom he lived and paul was determined that this young mixed church in rome would not share in this same anti-semitic prejudice no jewish superiority no gentile superiority And Paul's own ministry reflects this equality as we read about him through the New Testament, right? Have, have a look at verse 13 as Paul reflects on himself for a moment. He says, I'm, I'm talking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. Yeah, sure, Paul says. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. Yep. Yes, I wrote in Philippians that I consider my Jewish credentials garbage compared to knowing Christ. But that doesn't mean I've given up on Israel. Far from it, right? Paul hopes that his ministry to the Gentiles will progress God's plan to arouse Israel to envy and so save some of them. Ronnie and I are about to have our second child. And one of the things that we've got to prepare for now is jealousy from Bella, our eldest, as our family adjusts to a new sibling, right? And, and what we already know, but Bella is going to need to learn, is that bringing a new baby into the family and sharing our love with that baby doesn't reduce our love for her. It's not like Ronnie and I are going to have two families, each with one child in it. It won't be one child preferenced over the other. It will be one family in which our complete love is extended to both children and indeed they enrich and bless and love one another as well. And that's, that's God's picture for his family. Both Jewish and Gentile worshippers of Jesus are fully and equally welcomed and valued and loved This is not a family in which the older son resents the father for his love for the prodigal, nor one in which the younger son allows the lavish expression of the father's love to him to birth any sense of superiority or preference. It's a a strong teaching here, right? And one of the questions that it raises, maybe a question that you've got in your mind is, what does that actually mean? look like what does that actually mean what should we expect to see in our world what was going to what's going to happen to Israel in the future well Paul he kind of introduces this question here and then he focuses in much more on it next week and Alex gets to preach that next week so good luck to Alex pray for him so let, let me just try to identify now for us what Paul's guarding against, and then next week we'll think more focus about what Paul is saying will happen to Israel. So here's kind of what he's guarding against. that There's no room for the opinion that God is done with Israel. you You can't look across at the people of Israel and say, well, they had their chance, they missed it, and now God's done with them and he's moved on to be honest I think perhaps that's an attitude towards Israel that I've kind of slipped into as I've wrestled through the passage this week it's it's been a challenge a conviction for me that's that's no good to think of Israel like that there's also not two salvation plans there's not one plan for the Jews and one plan for the Gentiles No, there's one plan for salvation through Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel and the Saviour of the world. Through this salvation plan, the gospel went from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth in order to arouse Israel to envy and to bring them back in, at which point Jew and Gentile together enrich and bless one another as God's people together. So, what should we expect to happen to the people of Israel in the future? Should we expect a great homecoming of the Jews, a kind of mass conversion event which marks God bringing about this plan? Well that's for next week, you have to come back to find the answer to that. Now the the day has finally come today when I get to do two things that I love very much. I get to Talk about the bible and i get to talk about gardening at the same time so this is very this is a bit of a dream come true moment for me if i get too carried away talking about gardening just stick your hand up and i'll, I'll come back to the bible all right so through the rest of this passage paul introduces this metaphor that kind of guides the rest of what he says it's the picture of an olive tree now a, a few of us jay and maggie and a few others spent yesterday at the annual st jude's Olive Harvest. Uh, cutting olive trees and harvesting olives all day. So maybe the last thing that you guys want to think about is an olive tree right now. Uh, or maybe you feel like you're an expert in olive trees, in which case Paul is speaking your language. This, this metaphor, this picture begins with a summary statement. Have a look uh, in your Bible or in your handout there in verse 16. He finishes that verse, If the root is holy, so are the branches. And then he goes on to talk about the Gentiles being like wild olive shoots grafted into a cultivated olive tree, right? So so grafting, if you're not familiar with this, is a process by which you take a a branch of one tree and you bind it in, you attach it in to the trunk, the root stock, it's called, of another tree. Because in a tree, sap, the, the kind of nutrients of the tree moves up from the roots up through the bark and into the branches. And so if you align the bark of a branch with the bark of the tree, then that tree will start to feed and nourish and prosper that branch. And you do this in order to make the most of the strengths of both the tree and the branch. So for example, I've got a, a passion fruit vine at home, right? and the rootstock is a very vigorous and hardy type of passion fruit, but it doesn't produce much fruit but then the the main vine is from a type of passion fruit which is very fruitful but is quite weak and not particularly resilient. And so that vine has been grafted onto the rootstock and it enjoys the strength of both those types of passion fruit and it's very uh, strong and vigorous and fruitful. And so this is kind of the picture that Paul's using here. Now, I, I don't know if there's any grafters in the room, anyone who does a bit of grafting in their spare time. If there does happen to be, You might look at Paul's metaphor here and see it with some kind of suspicion. Some people have have done this because normally what you do with grafting is you take the branch of a cultivated, a kind of cared for, developed tree and you graft it onto a kind of a vigorous and hardy wild stock. But in this picture it's, it's the opposite, it's a wild branch being grafted into a cultivated olive tree so some commentators have kind of chuckled at Paul like he's a bit of a city boy here he doesn't really get how grafting works which is I think probably a bit arrogant to be honest from a bible commentator to say that especially when this passage is deliberately calling out arrogance but no 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 Paul isn't getting grafting wrong it was a a tactic a strategy in ancient Mediterranean olive growing to uh, when a cultivated a kind of domesticated olive tree was flagging it was declining it was wilting to graft in a number of wild branches and somehow in the way that the tree and the branch work together that would kind of invigorate and re-energize the rootstock the main tree itself and so it would become fruitful and abundant again and so of course this this practice then fits perfectly I hope you can see with what it is that Paul's trying to teach us So here's a cultivated olive tree, right? And this this tree has been cared for, it's been developed, it's been nourished, and so it should be producing good fruit. But it's not, it's it's declining. And so in this metaphor then, what God does is he brings uh, branches from a wild olive tree. So here's uh, a branch from a wild olive tree from the wilds of the park at the top of my street. Uh, and in this picture, then, God takes wild branches and he grafts them into the cultivated tree. Now, I'm not going to do the actual grafting because it will take some time. And we're here for a sermon, not a gardening talk. <laughs> but just imagine, imagine that uh, this branch is being grafted in to the rootstock, to the tree, right? Hopefully it doesn't fall. No, good. The Gentiles don't fall out of God's tree if that happens. <laughs> have a look at verse 17 with me. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. Right, so in this ancient practice, when the tree is declining, you don't just add in wild branches, you also prune some branches. You take unhealthy branches off the tree. And So this is part of God's picture as well, right? Part of the metaphor here. You do this to allow more sunlight in, more airflow, makes makes the tree healthier. And so some of the cultivated branches are taken off and the wild branches are grafted in. And so then these branches cut off, what are they in Paul's kind of word picture in his metaphor here? They're the Jews who've rejected the gospel. They're the people of Israel who who haven't recognized that their Messiah has come. And so in the picture here then, the grafted in branches, they look down at the cut off branches and they get proud. They think they're better than those branches. They think they're superior, verse 18, or they're arrogant, as verse 20 says. But but is that the right way for the grafted in branches to perceive themselves? No, of course not. Paul says, you do not support the root, the root supports you. As verse 17 said, you share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. So what's what's the root then in this metaphor, this kind of word picture that Paul's painting? Well, the the root, the the nourishing sap that's flowing up into the tree and the branches is the, the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and God's promises to them through his people that continue to flow to God's people in the whole world. It's by God's faithfulness to those promises to the fathers of the nation of Israel that we, you and me, enjoy all the blessings of the gospel. Those promises to to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15, those promises to bless the world through their descendants, those promises flow up to us like sap through the bark of a tree whether those branches whether you and I are natural branches whether we're ethnically Jewish or whether we're grafted in ethnically Gentile we have interlocking destinies together and we then those of us who are Gentiles as as vigorous wild branches we enrich and strengthen the rootstock it's this chain of blessing right going back and forth between Jew and Gentile and so then, as we've seen, Paul's key application of this, this word picture of this painting, is in verse 18 and in verse 20. If we are wild branches grafted in to be strengthened by and to strengthen the rootstock, then do not consider yourself to be superior to the other branches. Verse 24, if God can graft you in, how much easier would it be for him to graft back in the branches that are naturally part of the tree? And verse 20, don't be arrogant, but tremble. There is no room for arrogance, for superiority, for a kind of smug self-satisfaction. In the book of Romans, Jews shouldn't think that they are preferenced by God because of their genetics. And Gentiles shouldn't think that they're preferenced by God because of their genetics. So... What what do we do with this? We're not in a first century mixed church that's kind of beset by tension between Jewish and Gentile members, right? But all scripture is God-breathed, is useful for us. So what's the use of this passage for you and for me? Well, I think there's a challenge here for us as we look back and as we look across and as we look forward at Israel. As we look back as we look across as we look forward at israel so as we consider each of those think about what god might be saying to you tonight what which of these implications might be for your heart and your life i wonder um and don't worry this isn't a stand-up comedy show i'm not going to make you do anything is there anyone here who has jewish heritage ethnic heritage no, no one. Okay, so there was, there was two people in the morning service out of 200 and none of us here tonight. But friends, every single one of us has Jewish heritage, right? Every single one of us can trace our spiritual heritage back through the covenant people of God to Jesus, the son of David, descendant of Abraham. So as we consider Romans 11 tonight, perhaps God's prompting you to know and explore and appreciate your Jewish spiritual heritage more. How much do you read the Old Testament that makes up the significant majority of the Bible? How much do you seek to grow in your understanding of the Old Testament, the ways that God called people to live under his old covenant, the Torah law? The scripture, which we call the Old Testament, which Jews share, is incredibly rich and impossibly deep and staggeringly beautiful. You could spend a lifetime exploring every corner of the Old Testament and never reach the edges. If this is you, if this is how God's speaking to you tonight, then maybe you could get into some reading or some podcasting or some learning to know and love the Old Testament more, which is your heritage. It's your story. You could try the Bible Project podcast. That will blow your mind. You could read Isaiah in your quiet times before we start preaching Isaiah after we finish Romans 9 to 11. You could do some study at Ridley to help you understand the Old Testament more. You could go and visit the Jewish Museum that's in St. Kilda. It's, it's your family history, right? It's your heritage. There's only one tree. Or tonight, perhaps the challenge for you is a bit more sobering. As we look across at Israel now, do you need to put to death any sense of superiority or arrogance towards them? Do you need to repent of a theologically veneered anti-Semitism? If there's anything that we've seen from Romans 9 to 11 so far, it's that by salvation is... That salvation is by God, and it's from God, and it's for God. We are in no position to boast because of who we are, right? It's like being carried up a mountain and then posting selfies from the top. It's like catching an Uber and then posting it on Strava. (laughs) We're in no position to boast. Don't look across at Israel and feel superior. Don't fall into that trap of assuming that God is done with them. And this, this happens, right? Even the great hero of faith, Martin Luther, after years of failed attempts to preach the gospel to Jewish people, he famously became bitter and dismissive of the Jews. He even wrote a book called The Jews and Their Lies. And he advocated for their synagogues to be burnt down and their rabbis to be silenced. It happens. I, I know a guy who's a Jewish rabbi. And when he talks to me about the practice of his personal faith and what his community does together to worship Yahweh, it makes me feel sad because it seems like he's lost the heart of God's law and is pursuing legalistic righteousness by works. Each, each festival, each practice that he describes just feels like it's become ritualistic and, and devoid of genuine relationship. But as I think about him, I'm challenged by Romans 11 not to look at him with any kind of smug superiority, right? not to look down on him, not to belittle him. Instead, I think I should have a broken heart for him. I should grieve how he seems to be missing God's heart. And I should ask him, I shouldn't assume that he's indulging legalism, but actually ask him about his practices. if you have any jewish friends how should you talk to them how should you feel about them not as old news not as inferior look at them with with sadness that's born out of your love their father loves them he wants to give them everything that he has promised to them he's standing with his hands held out to them it's heartbreaking that they don't know it Israel is is the prodigal son in a far off land and God waits at the gate longing to welcome them home. Even, Even this very week, how should we feel, what should we pray, what should we do as we look across at Israel, at the nation state of Israel and we see the violence that's being done there by and against Israel? Well, we should grieve just how far off seem God's promises to these people. This is God's promise to the people of Israel in Jeremiah 33. Nevertheless, the time will come when I will heal Jerusalem's Jerusalem's wounds and give it prosperity and true peace. Then this city will bring me joy, glory and honour before all the nations of the earth. The people of the world will see the good I do for my people and they will tremble with awe at the peace and prosperity I provide for them. We should pray for peace in Jerusalem, as Psalm 122 calls us to. Pray for the gospel to transform that place. So tonight, look back at Israel and see your heritage, your story, your people, Look across at Israel with humility and look forward for Israel with hope. God has a plan. He has a future for the people of Israel. We don't know the exact contours of how God will bring that plan about. We'll explore that more next week, but we know God's heart for these people. So pray for God to save Jews. Jews. Pray that Jews would recognise that Jesus, their Messiah, has come. That they don't have to wait anymore. If you have Jewish friends, pray for them. Share the gospel with them. Introduce them to the one perfect worshipper of Yahweh who perfectly fulfilled the Torah and then died and rose to write the Torah on our hearts. The, the Jewish people... After the end of World War II, they bestowed a particular honour on people who had hidden or defended or helped Jews who were suffering persecution during the war. They bestowed on these people the title, The Righteous Among the Nations. Those, Those who hid fugitives in their homes, those who provided for impoverished Jews out of their own resources, many of whom who died as a result of their actions. Some who were Christians, while other Christians and churches did nothing or even supported the persecution in a twisted and extreme form of the arrogant superiority which God calls out here. The righteous among the nations. People like Maria Agnes Triboli, who led her order of nuns to hide Jews in their convent. Or Lois Gundon, American Christian, who hid Jewish children in France. Or André Trochme, a French pastor who spent the years of the war hiding Jews in his home and leading them across the mountains into Switzerland. We, we live in different times, but the gospel gives us the same call to treat the people of Israel with compassion, to live with the law of God, with the Torah written on our hearts. Would it be that when the Jews look across at the Christians, they see us like the Jews saw Peter and John in Acts and were astonished and took note that these people had been with Jesus? Would it be that when the Jews look across at the Christians, they would still see us as the righteous among the nations and that through us, they would come home to their God? I'm going to pray that God would do that now. God, your salvation plan is mysterious and it's wonderful and it's unfolding day by day. God, we pray that you would indeed bring many Jews to recognize and to love Jesus the Messiah. Please use us in your salvation plan and we long for the day when Jew and Gentile in your presence enrich and bless one another forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.